Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us today at New City as we celebrate four years. Uh, last week I wore a suit. This week I'm wearing a tie. So who knows what I'm going to show up with next week, okay? Um, but I'm excited to be here. Uh, as I begin, uh, I remember when uh, Christina was pregnant with our first child. I've shared this before, um, but I really wanted a boy. I really wanted a boy. Uh, I, my dad passed away when I was 19, and so I wanted to be able to be a dad to a son the way that he was to me. And it's not that I didn't want to have any girls. I just wanted to have at least one. And you're only going to have a certain amount of kids. And so, you know, if this one wasn't a boy, then, you know, the chances are getting lower and lower. And so uh, we go and we find out, you know, what the gender is of our child. Turns out it was a girl. And I was bummed. Like, I, I'm not going to lie. Like, I was disappointed. Not because I didn't want to have a girl, but I just really wanted to have at least one boy. And I was like, well, what if we have another girl? And, you know, so I was kind of bummed about this. And then we go to the hospital. Um, and we deliver the child, and I say we on purpose because it was a two-person effort. Um, we told the doctors not to worry about me if I pass out during. Uh, twice I had to sit down because I got a little queasy, you know, but I pushed through, and we did it. And Finley was born, our daughter, uh, six years ago uh, this coming Saturday. And uh, what happened, you know, as soon as I laid eyes on my daughter was, I don't need no stinking boy. Right, she is awesome. I don't care. You can give me 50 boys. I don't want them. I want her. And Finley has been awesome. She's been such a delight and just a joy to have, and I am beyond grateful for who she is. And, and I share that story because there was, you know, things were going one way. I wanted certain things to happen, but then when it all came together, when Finley was born, it didn't matter. In fact, I was actually grateful to have a daughter who I wouldn't trade for the world. And I share that because today we are finishing our book of Exodus. Some of you are like, finally. Uh, this is the longest, not the longest series we've done. First Corinthians was longer, but the longest book we've done. We're in uh, chapter 40 this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to chapter 40. If not, there's a black one around you. It'll be page 84 on that. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. Is our gift to you. We are seeing the culmination of the book of Exodus, of things finally coming together. And my hope, especially if you've been here throughout the series, is that it'll pay off in a way that's, I hope, extra special over the next couple of minutes. Uh, I'm not going to recap all of it, but Exodus is the story of God taking the Israelites, who were only about 70 people in number at the time, uh, when the book of Exodus begins. Uh, they are enslaved. They are beaten. All these terrible things happen to them. God rescues them, not because they're awesome, but simply because God is graceful, uh, gracious, and he wants to take a nation from which he will bless the entire world. Uh, and so a lot of plagues and the power of God was displayed because the Egyptians would not the, let the Israelites go. They leave Egypt. They start wandering through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. They reject God time and time again. They create a golden calf that they worship. And what does God do? responds with grace. Again, if you've been reading this story, there are times when you're like, God, why don't you just get rid of them? They clearly don't deserve it, but God is gracious and kind. And so today we finish this uh, book of Exodus uh, in chapter 40. What's happening here, again, uh, they got the Ten Commandments and a few of the laws. They were given instructions on the tabernacle to build, which will be in the center of the Israelite camp where God's presence and grace and power will reside. Uh, and so they're, they're finally at this point where they, everything has been created, everything has been built, and God is going to reside with Israel, and they're going to set up this tabernacle uh, that they have donated and built, and everything has been leading up to this. And so here's what it says, chapter 40, starting in verse 1. We're going to read all the verses that we're going to read up front, and then we'll talk about it. Here's what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses, you are to set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the month. Put the ark of the testimony there and screen off the ark with the curtain. That's where the Ten Commandments are going to be. Then verse 4, then bring in the table and lay out its arrangement. Also bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. 
Place the gold altar for incense in the front of the altar of the testimony. Put up the screen for the entrance to the tabernacle. Position the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Assemble the surrounding courtyard and hang the screen for the gate of the courtyard. So what's happening here, it says in verse 2, in the first month, this would have been mid-March to mid-April in the ancient world. Uh, the new year was kind of marked by essentially the beginning of spring and the end of winter. Uh, and so what this shows us is that Israel has been out of Egypt for just about a year at this point. Uh, it took them about a year to get here, to assemble all the tabernacle, to do through the various trials and circumstances uh, that, they fa- that they faced. And so they're about a year into this. Uh, and when it tells us also uh, that they're going to set this up on the first day, um, it indicates that this, th- this tent of meeting, this tabernacle and the altar and everything that goes with it could be set up in one day which is significant because whenever they had to travel throughout the the wilderness, they had to tear it apart and bring it with it and set it back up. And so it could be set up in one day. And what would happen is they would start from the holiest place. I'll show you a picture in just a second. Um, But the holiest place of the tabernacle and kind of go out from there. And so they would place everything in there, everything in the tabernacle and kind of build it up from there. And so what happens is they're building up this tabernacle and we'll pick it up in verse 16. If you look down to verse 16, as they kind of put everything together, here's what it says. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. The tabernacle was set up in the first month of the second, or sorry, the, the tabernacle was set up in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month. Moses set up the tabernacle. He laid its basins, positioned its supports, inserted its crossbars, and set up its pillars. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses took the testimony and placed it in the ark, attached the poles to the ark. He set the mercy seat on top of the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle, put up the curtain for the screen, and screened off the ark of the testimony, just as the Lord commanded him. Verse 22, a few more verses, it says this, Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain. He arranged the bread on it before the Lord, just as the Lord commanded him. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded him. So everyone's got a really good picture of what's going on here, right? Uh, If not, here's a picture for you. Let me give you one. Um, This one might be a little hard to see, but here's basically the setup of the tabernacle. Um, We'll start, I guess, from your left. Uh, The first thing you see is the altar. This is where the the animals would have been sacrificed pretty much all day. Um, Right next to that is the water basin where the priests would wash after the sacrifices and or before they would enter into the tabernacle. Uh, The first kind of two-thirds of the tabernacle, you have the table of bread, uh, you have the altar of incense, and you have the candles that would be lit 24-7, the incense that would be burned 24-7, and then kind of that last third, the top, was the Holy of Holies. This is where God's presence would dwell. Uh, This is where the Ark of the Covenant is. The Ten Commandments were placed into them. Uh, Moses was the only one allowed into this part for a while, and then eventually the high priest was allowed into there. And so a few priests could be allowed into the first section of the tabernacle, but only Moses and a couple of high priests very rarely were allowed into the holies of holies. And so this is the tabernacle. It's been placed together. It has been built. And then here's how the book of Exodus ends. If you look back at verse 34, here's what it says. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
The Israelites sat out when, or the Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taking up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. And so when God's presence, the cloud was raised, they would follow that, they would tear down the tabernacle, and the whole camp would move. Uh, verse 37. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of the journey. And so pretty much no matter where your camp was set up, this tabernacle would have been in the middle of the camp. You would be able to see it. Now, here is a problem as we get to the end of Exodus. You have a tabernacle that is finally built, which is great that God has forgiven and given grace to Israel time and time again. God's presence is going to dwell there, but Moses can't go in, right? It's kind of like, you know, a, a builder builds a house. They hand over the keys to the owner. The builder is no longer the owner of the house. They're no longer allowed to go in, and so Moses can't enter. And so you might be thinking, we went through a lot of Exodus to get to this point. I know, but that's how it ends. So we'll pray, and then we'll eat, and then, no, I'm just kidding. Although some of you are like, actually, that sounds fine. Uh, that's not, Here, here's what's helpful to know. Uh, Exodus is part of the Pentateuch, which is basically another fancy way of saying the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, it's kind of one epic narrative, and so Exodus is part two of that narrative. And then Leviticus part three shows us what happens next. I'll just read it real quick. And here's what it says in chapter one, verse one of Leviticus. It'll be on the screen. It'll also be on the next page on your Bible. It says this, then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him in front of the tent of meeting. Speak to the Israelites and tell them when any of you brings an offering to the Lord from the livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd or the flock then gives instructions about how, what this is going to look like, the process. And then what does he do? He invites them into the courtyard, into his presence. In other words, God waits just one verse to welcome them in to his presence and his power and his glory. Now, all of this is actually a foreshadowing of what is to come. And I'll show you, explain to this in a second. But in the end, ultimately, this is not just a foreshadowing of Jesus. This is also a foreshadowing to the end of the age when God comes and, as we saying, makes all things new. Now, what's interesting when you think about the future, when you think about God uh, returning and recreating and all these things, there's, in my experience, there's really three ways that you and I can think about the future and what God's going to do at the end of the age. Here's the first one. One of the ways we can think about the future is we can think, that the earth is bad. That's one of the ways that we can think about it. Like, in other words, like Jesus comes back and like zaps the earth and like her revelation is talking about Hapachi helicopters, but everything's going to explode and go bad. But don't worry, the Christians get to like rapture into the sky before it happens. And so we're safe and we're good. and We don't have to worry about it, right? Uh, the problem is you get really bad. I would argue that that's not at all how scripture talks about it. In fact, in May, we're starting the book of Thessalonians and we'll be looking at one of the passages that talks about believers going and meeting Jesus in the sky. So we'll actually get to see what that actually means. It does not mean, at least I would argue, it does not mean, you know, think of like the Left Behind series where you just go like, bam, you're gone. And like you're, the Christians are gone. The earth, earth just goes crazy. Um, this earth is bad concept may make for really bad produced but interesting storylines. Um, I remember like as a kid or a teenager watching like this video of like this kind of concept where like Christians just vanish out of nowhere. And there was like this middle-aged guy, him and his wife are like dancing in their apartment and he like goes to twirl her and all the gone, she just vanishes. Like she's just gone. And like this person's like walking a dog and they're just gone. And people are like, what's happening here? Right. Um, that is 
is not what actually happens. And the problem is, if you and I believe that the earth is bad, that what we do here doesn't matter, and we just go to heaven when we die, and that's what really matters, it can lead to us practically living out our faith in a very poor way, right? In fact, this theology allows us to say things like, slavery is bad, but as long as we tell the slaves about Jesus, they get to go to heaven when they die, and so it's not a big deal. Uh, what this does is this can lead to apathy. Uh, and so, and I'm not, I never try to, I'm not trying to be provocative for provocative sake, um, but what this can do is that it can make us think things like social justice doesn't matter. Now, I know when I say social justice, that might be a loaded term for some of you, so maybe just think biblical justice, or maybe just think the fact that scripture says we should care about the poor and the marginalized and oppressed, like that is a Christian thing. Well, the problem is, if earth is bad and everything that is here is bad, yeah, we might feel bad when people are mistreated, but like one day it's going to be fine, so it doesn't really move us to action. And not only is this a bad theology, if this were to be true, then Satan would win. All of God's creation, all of the universe right now, Satan would get, essentially get to take over because God's going to do away with it. But that is not what we see happening in Scripture. And so one way you could see this is that earth is bad. We just want to get to heaven when we die, and so we can feel bad when bad things happen, but we don't really need to do anything about it because it's all temporary. That's one way to view the future. Another way to view the future is earth without heaven. Uh, this would be uh, the predominant, uh, maybe cultural view of our society today, right? That heaven doesn't exist, like this is all there is, and so you better go get it, right? Do whatever makes you feel happy. Your marriage is difficult, get out of it. Uh, if you want to pursue something, if you want to go your own way, don't let anyone stop you or hold you back from doing whatever makes you happy. And if by chance there happens to be an afterlife, well, I'm a good person, so I'm going to I'm going to go to heaven anyway because we all justify everything that we do. And so we can live how we want, right? Earth, heaven is not real. Earth without heaven, this is all there is. So you better get after it. This is also an unbiblical view of what the future is, which leads us to the third one, and I would argue the actual biblical one that we see throughout Exodus, Exodus in all of Scripture, and that is heaven on earth. Heaven on earth, which may be a different concept than what you and I typically think about. For example, this is what Exodus, this is what the tabernacle is pointing to. It's pointing to not that God has said, I want to get rid of it. I don't want anything to do with it. God is saying, I'm going to come into time, come into space, and create spaces on earth where my presence would dwell so that people might experience my grace. Right, this tabernacle is communicating that God is re-Edenizing the world, if you will. We won't get all into it today. But Exodus is full of this imagery of the garden all over again, where God creates Adam and Eve to places them in the garden, where his goodness and grace will spread over all of the earth. Right? They sin, they rebel, and so God's presence is taken away. And so he then takes a people, he promises Abraham, and then it comes in its fulfillment in the Israelites, that he's going to make another place where he's going to call another people to himself, and they're going to work for six days, and they're going to Sabbath on the seventh, and they're going to have God's presence in their midst in the tabernacle and in, in, in the temple. And from them, God's grace and his might and his power is going to extend over the earth. This is the Garden of Eden, again, that God wants to make all things new. Now, of course, we know what happens. The Israel's, Israel falls short. Uh, they sin just like you and me. They can't measure up. But God's goal is to produce heaven on earth, not to get rid of it, but to recreate it. In other words, what we need to understand about Scripture and that what we can often miss is that heaven isn't the goal, the kingdom of God is. And so when we talk about heaven, what we really mean here is the kingdom of God. 
In other words, God's focus for you and for me, and really the point of Scripture, is not what we have to do to get to a good place when we die. The point is, what does it look like for us to experience the kingdom of God? In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus' baptism, he's into the wilderness, he's tempted by the Satan, and he, you know, passes the test, and then he begins his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. He actually says that his goal is to spread the message of the kingdom of God. And what happens is if we get this wrong, if we think about following Jesus as about maybe being a good person or loving people or trying to get our ticket into heaven, then we'll focus on the wrong things. We won't focus on the kingdom of God. We'll focus on what we need to do to make sure we go to heaven when we die. And when we focus on the wrong thing, it leads to wrong results. Like, so for example, I've shared this before. Uh, when Finley was six months old, uh, we were in Statesville, North Carolina. It's about two hours outside of Raleigh for Christmas. And we were driving back a couple days later and it was me and Christina and Finley and my younger brother. And Finley was at the age where like you time driving times by nap time to try to make sure, you know, you can get through it. And so we're going and I'm in the back seat with Finley, like playing on my iPad. Christina's driving and my little brother's in the front seat. And Christina really wants to use her GPS. And I'm like, you don't need to use your GPS. You're just going to take 40 east for two hours and you're there. And why are you, why are you laughing? You, okay, not all of you have heard this story, so, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and, so, and so we go, and she, right before the, the you know, the exit ramp, she, she takes, a, she turns into a road, like, you know, sometimes it's confusing if it's kind of like a rural place, it's like, is this the ramp, or is there one before it, so she took the, the wrong road, and I said, don't worry about it, just turn around, get back on the main road, and take the exit ramp, and so she turns around, I stop paying attention, like, playing on my iPad or whatever, and we're driving, and about an hour into the trip, I look out the window, and I noticed something. It doesn't look familiar. It doesn't look familiar. And I discreetly and quietly pull out my phone and find out the, the reality that we had been going west for an hour, the wrong direction. And so I had the privilege and the honor of telling my wife, we're going the wrong way. So that was great. And it turned a two-hour trip into a four-hour trip. Uh, we were going to stop at the Tanger Outlets on the way back, you know what I'm saying, to try to spend some of that Christmas money. That didn't happen. We had some friends coming over for dinner. That didn't happen. We had to go out. It was awesome. It was a great time to be alive, right? What happened, though, is I was not focused on what I needed to be focused on to make sure we were going in the right direction. I was focused on the wrong thing, and it led to wrong Results. This is what happens if we don't understand that the goal is not personal, individual salvation where everything is good for us. The goal is God's kingdom spread over the earth. And this is the goal of all of Scripture. If you can stick with me for like three minutes, this might be a little technical. Let me just show you how this is a super high level, how absolutely beautiful we see the kingdom of God being throughout Scripture. So here's the problem. Oftentimes, you and I, we can view heaven and earth as different places or different spaces. So heaven's here, earth's here, and the goal is how do we get from here to here, and then we're good. Heaven is where you go when you die. The earth is where we live until then. And so, it's, again, it's kind of bad. It's not that big of a deal. We want to get to heaven. But that's not what we see what happens throughout Scripture. What we see what happens throughout Scripture is that what happens in the beginning? That heaven and earth were actually united. God creates the universe and on this planet Earth, he creates a garden where he places Adam and Eve, where his presence and his power and his grace would dwell, from which with the hope and the goal that his presence would spread throughout all of the world. Adam and Eve sin, and so we were driven apart by sin, and so that, that split happened. And what has happened all throughout Scripture since then? That God has been working to bring back together heaven and earth and reestablish his kingdom, not in some mystical faraway place, but here. So here's the really super brief story. You have the Garden of Eden, you, of the Eden. You have an overlap, heaven and earth together. Then you have sin and separation. 
And then what happens? God calls the Israelites. They create a tabernacle and eventually a a temple when they get to Jerusalem where this overlap happens again. This one pocket on earth where God's presence and power dwells. Now, in order to get into this pocket, because we are sinful and broken, sacrifices need to be made so that we can step into the presence of a righteous and a holy and a good God, which is why they had the sacrificial system so that the priests could enter God's presence on behalf of the people. Well, what happens again, Israel ultimately is unfaithful. They can't do what God is asking them to do, and it's really pointing to our need for Jesus. So Jesus comes, does for you and I what we could not do for ourselves. This is why in John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, the word became flesh, Jesus, and dwelt among us. If you literally translate from the Greek, it says he tabernacled among us, or he pitched his tent among us. So what happens is that Jesus is now the temple. Jesus is now the tabernacle. He is the place where heaven and earth overlap. And what does he do? He creates these little pockets of heaven where he goes. He heals people. He forgives sin. He gives people grace and love. And so he creates these little pockets of heaven as he is going. And how does he command us to pray? What is the Lord's prayer? That God's will be done on where? On? Okay, now now that you know the answer, God's will be done on? earth as it is in heaven. Not God's will be done some future time in heaven as it currently is in heaven. God's will be done on earth. His goal is to bring some of the God's presence and kingdom here, right? What is he doing? He's creating this overlap again. Well, then what happens? Jesus is killed, right? And what happens in this time where he is killed and resurrected is he is no longer just the temple. He is also the sacrifice. He is now creating this clean space where you and I, broken and sinful, can now enter into God's presence, not because of us, because of him. And so the question then becomes, what happens when we die? Now, Scripture, again, does clearly seem to say that at this moment, if you to die and you know Jesus, you do go to heaven. Right? That's what Jesus says on the cross. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. But that is not the focus, and that is not the goal. The focus is on how, how, how heaven and earth are overlapping and are being reunited with Jesus and will one day be fully reunited again when Jesus comes not to destroy the world, but to recreate it, to make all things new so that you and I can experience his grace and his presence and his love. This is what the book of Revelation, for example, is pointing towards. That instead of a garden, you now have a city or a kingdom of God uh, where this overlap is complete, where God has brought made everything new, that all, all of us that are in Christ get to experience his grace and mercy, that he came to initiate this overlap that he will ultimately consummate when he returned, where, where we will dwell with physical bodies. This is why in Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, the whole chapter of Revelation is awesome. I'll just read the first two verses. It'll be on the screen. It says this. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. This is the goal. God's kingdom come. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven where he recreates everything where we can experience his grace and his mercy. This is why one of the main themes we've said throughout this series is that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. 
everything that is happening here is a unified story that leads to Jesus, that Jesus is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And as we follow him, we experience a small piece of God's kingdom here, ultimately what we will experience in perpetuity for all of eternity when Jesus comes, right? And, and the book of Exodus shows this to us. Uh, what the amazing thing about Exodus and why we've talked about in this series, you don't have to know anything about the Old Testament to understand and follow Jesus, but it makes it more beautiful when you do. Uh, we could spend hours talking about all of the ways that Jesus fulfills things that happen in the, in the Exodus. I'm just going to give you eight really quick so you can see how magnificent and beautiful this actually is. Right? If you look at the life of Jesus, what do you see? You see that Jesus, just like Israel, comes out of Egypt. He comes out of Egypt. In Matthew chapter 2, it won't be on the screen. I'll read it for you. Uh, the author of Matthew is quoting from the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, he was a prophet, and he was referencing how Israel was drawn up out of Egypt, right, out of captivity. And this is what Matthew says in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. It says, after they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Jesus' dad, Joseph, this is after Jesus was born, the wise men had left. It said, get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and kill him. So all the boys, two years and old and younger, and Jesus' region of Bethlehem were going to be killed, and so they had to flee so that Herod could not find him. Then it says this in verse 14. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord to the prophet Hosea might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Just like Israel was taken out of Egypt, so Jesus comes out of Egypt. The other thing we see is that Jesus is the I am. If you were with us in Exodus chapter 3, way back in the fall, this is the story of the burning bush where God calls Moses, and Moses is like, how am I supposed to go back to Israel? Why are they going to listen to me? And God tells them his name. What does he say? I am who I am, right? Or I be who I be. If you were there for that sermon, you know, I had some little dance moves. I'm not going to do it today, but I had some dance moves, and they were awesome. You should watch them, okay? And he's revealing his name, that I am powerful, that I am mighty, that I am just. Well, what does Jesus do? during his ministry. Well, in John chapter 8, Jesus is confronted with some religious leaders and some Pharisees who are basically saying that Jesus is demon-possessed, that he's a Samaritan, that he can't do all the things that he's doing. And what does he tell them? He tells them that Abraham would lo love to see the day that I'm actually here, that Abraham, the forefather, who you love and adore, and rightly so, was actually pointing towards my day. And they respond to Jesus and be like, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. How are you going to act like you were around when Abraham was here? How do you know? what Abraham actually wanted. And what does he say to them? He responds to them in John chapter 8 by saying, before Abraham was, I am. Now that doesn't make any sense on its own. I am what? What is he saying? He's saying, I am. That my presence and power was at the burning bush, which is why as soon as he says that, they pick up stones to try to stone him for blasphemy. Jesus saying, I was there. I am. Jesus comes out of Egypt. We also see that Jesus begins in the wilderness. So just like the Israelite uh, began after their exodus for 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus begins his ministry after he is baptized by John the Baptist uh, for with a 40-day fast in the wilderness where Satan comes and tries to tempt him uh, three times. Jesus quotes scripture back to him. He quotes a couple of passages from Deuteronomy to emphasize that just like Israel lived not just on bread alone but by the presence of God, so does Jesus himself. 
And so he resists the temptation of Satan. Unlike us, Jesus actually passes the test. Jesus, like Israel, begins in the wilderness. We also see that Jesus fulfills the commandments. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, it says this. Jesus says this. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Right? Jesus fulfills the law. If you were here that week, we talked about some of the hard to wrestle with uh, Old Testament laws. We see that Jesus is love because the law is actually love. What does it look like for us to love God and love people? Jesus fulfills the commandments. We also see that Jesus becomes the tabernacle, right? That God graciously made his presence and power available to Israel. And so God comes uh, to make his presence and power available to the world. You see, the thing about the tabernacle is only one person. And eventually the high priest only once a year was able to go and for the presence of God. Jesus comes and because of his atoning work on our behalf, you and I can walk into his presence and experience his grace and his love and mercy at all times, right? Jesus becomes the tabernacle. That's not it, y'all. We got some more. Jesus because our high priest. He's our high priest, right? Jesus is our final high priest. As it says in the book of Hebrews, he is the perfect and final sacrifice, which is why there is no longer a sacrificial system needed that he sits down at the right hand of God. The religious leaders had a really hard time wrestling with and accepting this, the fact that it was done, the fact that it was accomplished, that Jesus did it all for you and for me, that he is our high priest that gives us access to God. The Father, we see that Jesus is the greater Moses, right? That if you remember, Remember in Exodus chapter 32, um, the Israel has sinned. They have created the golden calf. And so Moses wants to go and atone for the Israelites. He says, God, destroy me. God, you can take me. Just let the Israelites experience your grace and forgiveness and mercy. The problem is Moses can't do that because he is not a perfect sacrifice. He has his own issues and his own junk that he has to deal with and is pointing to the greater Moses who could actually do what Moses couldn't do in Exodus 32. And finally, and this list could go on and on, and we'll end with this one that Jesus is our Passover. If you were here when we went over the Passover, Exodus chapter 12, the Israelites are getting ready to leave Egypt. The Pharaoh and the Egyptians would not let them go. And so God is going to display his power and his might one last time, just like he warned the Egyptians, where he's going to take the death of the firstborn. And so what does he command Israel to do? He says, slaughter a lamb, uh, paint the blood on the doorpost, uh, create, make some unleavened bread, uh, bread, roast the lamb, and get ready to go. Because as soon as morning hits, Israel, the Egypt is going to want to get you out of here. He is the Passover. And so what happens with Jesus when he's at his last supper with his disciples? They weren't eating some random meal. We talked about communion. Jesus was in Jerusalem. The beginning of Passover, it was a seven-day celebration that Israel celebrated every year. The beginning and the end of Passover were the big days. And so Passover starts, he's in a, he's in a room with his disciples, and they prepare the Passover meal. And what does he say to them? This is my body. This is my bread. This is my blood. He's saying all of this stuff is pointing to me. It was my power. It was my presence that was at the Exodus. And I am now fulfilling that. And what did we saw if you were here? The th one major ingredient of the Passover supper that is not mentioned in Jesus' final Passover is the lamb. There is no lamb. Why is there no lamb? Because Jesus is the lamb on our behalf who was slain so that you and I could experience the grace and mercy of God. This is why at New City Church, we say this often, that in Jesus, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. 
in Jesus. You have nothing to prove and no one to impress. You're not the sacrifice. You're not the temple. You're not the I am. You didn't come out of Egypt. You didn't experience the wilderness. You're not the Passover. You're not the greatest, greater Moses. God did all of this for you. And so if you are in Jesus, it's not about trying really hard because he accomplished all of it. It's not impressing about impressing anybody because God looks at you the same way he looks at Jesus, which is righteous and holy and just and loved and forgiven, right? He does it all for you and for me. Now, let me be clear. If you're not in Jesus, this is not true of you. If you're not in Jesus, you are under condemnation and sin and death and shame because you cannot outwork your way. You cannot impress God. God is righteous and holy and just, and he will deal with our shame and our evil and our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that God in his grace said, I love you. I care for you. You don't have to shape up. You don't have to work up. Come as you are today, and I will change your heart. My sacrifice is for you because of what Christ has done for us. You have nothing to prove and no one to impress, that he welcomes us as we are. We get to take of his body, his blood, and experience the grace and the mercy that he offers. This is the good news of what the Exodus is pointing to, that Jesus has done what you and I could not do to give us what you and I could not earn. And so today at New City, we get to celebrate four years of this, four years of God's faithfulness, of God being kind and gracious and generous to us. And it's not because of our awesomeness. It is only because of his awesomeness. And so what we did a couple of weeks ago, uh, we grabbed a few of you who were here, and we asked you to share one of your favorite things about New City Church. And we're going to share this video with you. I I just want to point out something. What you will find What makes this church special is not me, it's not the worship, it's not the building. It's the people of God being the people of God, of you and I uh, helping people meet Jesus and grow in relationship with him, right? This is the mission of our church. It's not about us. It's not about us being awesome. It's about helping people meet Jesus and grow in relationship with him. That's what we are about. And so as we shared earlier, we're celebrating baptisms in May. If you have never been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, let's celebrate death to life. Baptism does not save you, but is an external uh, indication of an internal change that has happened. Or if you're new here in New City and you're not connected, we would invite you to join us at our partnership lunch to learn if this is the church where you can actually walk in this mission, where you can help, that you can meet Jesus and grow in relationship with him. Because we are a community people, not about New City, not about us, but about Jesus and having as many people know that Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so take a look at this video on the screen. My favorite favorite thing about New City, I'm sorry, they they made me laugh. Oh, uh, uh, frick. I promise I like it here. My favorite thing about New City. My favorite thing about New City. My favorite thing about New City is it starts at 10 o'clock, fruit snacks, and coffee. And once I got connected with my community group, it was family. Definitely the community that we have here. Um, It's awesome. We're newer to the church, but we have felt so welcomed and accepted here. Honestly, just the people. Like, I haven't had this community at any other church. The people are amazing the young adult community. I just love community and it just brings me in. It helps me grow my faith in Christ. It's the people and the fellowship. The community. The community. 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 Be the people and just the community. Community. There we go. My favorite thing about New City is the worship. Is being on the production team and being able to hear live music twice a week, every week. It's fantastic. 
Um, I've never for one second felt unwelcome or unwanted, and I'm so thankful for just how loving this community is. Never feel out of place, always feel loved and welcomed every time I enter the building. Being able to have people that we can reach out to whenever we need help with life or whatever, whatever else is going on. My favorite thing about New City is that they're very friendly. Playing with my friends. I like um, when we get our boxes and play and watch the video and eat snacks. My favorite thing about New City is the worship. Ooh. How about you, Ben? No. No, okay. <laughs> New City Kids. We have so much fun back there in New City Kids, all while pointing kids to Jesus. I love that there's a place where I can drop my son off as well, too, and just know that he is cared for, loved for, prayed for, um, and most importantly, that our kids are knowing and growing with Jesus. All of the new faces, all the new people um, that have been coming over this past year or so, a lot of them from out of state, but it's been cool that they found this small little random church in Raleigh and come and been connected. It's how low-key the community is. I never feel pressured to socialize if I don't want to, but also they give me the freedom to be as expressionist as I like and, it, how, and be able to talk to people whenever I need to. When we were looking for a church home, we found a place where we could plug in instantly and build a community and really make a difference in others' lives and allow others to shape us in our faith as well. I think my favorite thing about New City is the ability to meet people where they're at um, and just everybody's genuine joy to meet every single person who walks through the doors every Sunday morning and our ability to just make people feel welcome and just really invite them into the wonderful community that we have. It's an honor to be the pastor here. I genuinely love our people. I love your attitudes, how you serve, how you give, the community here. Uh, it's an honor to be able to do this with you. I know I'm a little biased, but I really appreciate how biblical the teaching is and how it really pushes me to love Jesus more and to walk in obedience. It's the worship. It's authentic. People are raising their hands and crying and calling out, and it's beautiful when all of us are joined in worship like that. Still dealing. Our favorite thing about New City is new friendships. <laughs> Wait, that was awkward. Do it again. <laughs> Should we say it at the same time? Maybe? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Our, Our favorite, favorite thing, thing about, about New City is, is new friendships. friendships. <laughs> oh gosh. Is that it? I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's pretty awkward. Hey guys, I'm Matt. Um, I've been coming here for about a year and a half. Uh, I got invited by Kyle Margosian, Ryan Margosian. Uh, love that family. They're neighbors of ours. Um, one of my favorite things since I've started going here is obviously community. People are great. Um, but not only that, I really have loved serving on the worship team, uh, meeting those people, and really just getting to lead people in worship and uh, just kind of be used in that way. It's really enjoyable. I love it. My favorite thing about New City Church is everything. Everything. We love New City. Woo! Is this guy right here? Oh, I think we just broke the chair. <laughs> Did you hear that? It said pop. It always makes noise. Okay. <laughs> Is that good? Perfect. All right. Turn it off. Don't blame the sound guy. Blame me. Um, man, it's just a joy to be able to do this with you. And again, as we saw there, what's it, about it's about the community people living on mission for God so that you might be able to experience just a taste of God's kingdom on earth as we look forward to God's anticipation of making all things new. 
whether that helm is while we're alive or sometime in the future. That is what we live for. So I want to close by reading you a verse in 1 Corinthians. It'll be on the screen. Uh, The context here is the Apostle Paul is talking about sexual sin in particular, but really this could be applied to just sin more broadly in general. And here's what he says in verse 19 and 20. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit or a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, this passage here is not talking about eating food. Yes, it's good to be healthy. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about how you and I, the people of God collectively, are now God's tabernacle and temple in the world. That you and I now get to create small pockets of God's kingdom, God's kingdom come, God's heaven here, as we go and love and serve and care for the marginalized and the oppressed, oppressed and forgive one another and give each other grace. This should encourage us how we live. And so as we end our time in the book of Exodus, here's what I would argue. All of Exodus is showing us and all of us Exodus is pointing to. And it's the reality of the truth of this, that God draws us in so that he can draw us out. He draws us in. He has a tabernacle and a temple. We get to gather on Sundays or in groups or in serve or in conversations. We encourage one another. We love one another so that we can go into the community, into the places and the schools and the jobs, uh, the places that God has us and the families and the play dates and the friends so that people can experience a taste of who God is and what he has done. We, we, we exist to help people meet Jesus and grow in relationship with him. That's what we do. That's why we're here. We want, we want to see people in relationships restored. We want to see addictions broken. We want to see love conquering death. We want to see forgiveness coming in a place where people feel like they don't deserve it. We want to see life changed. And it starts by responding to the gospel. It starts by responding to who Jesus is and simply being in his presence. It's not about acting up a certain way to experience God's grace. It's right now in our brokenness and in our shame, we can experience God's love and grace because of what Christ has done. He is the fulfillment of Israel and he has done everything that you and I could not do. He stood in our place and defeated sin and death so you and I could sing and worship and celebrate the life that we have, not because of us, because of him. And so we're going to sing one more song. Uh, We're going to celebrate together. We're going to have a cookout after service. And we're going to just celebrate God's grace in our life as you and I go and love and serve in response of what Christ has done for us. And if you do not yet know Jesus, you need to know the invitation is for today, not next week, not next month, not three months from now. It's today that God loves you and accepts you and says, come eat at my table. Come experience a piece of God's kingdom here as we anticipate Christ's return. So if you'll stand with me, let's sing about God's goodness together.